The partially examined life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some fellows who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 245 is something like, what philosophical meaning lies in clothing? Or maybe can philosophy dispense with studying mere appearance? We read a selection, Susan Sontag's On Style from 1963, a 1984 interview with Michel Foucault, The Ethics of the Concern of the Self as a Practice of Freedom, and the beginning of a 1997 address by Jacques Derrida called The Animal That Therefore I Am. We're also pleased to be joined for this by Shahida Bari, author of the 2020 book Dressed, A Philosophy of Clothes. For more information about these texts, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, who tried to make my cat a theorem, but he was having none of it in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, stylized, if not with style, in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey contemplating what my preference for flannel and leather boots means about myself <laughs> in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Shahid Abari in London, and my leg is in a cast because I've ruptured my Achilles heel. It's hard to style it out um, <laughs> in a orthopedic boot. <laughs> Put a giant flag on it. There are many options. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I, I just watched Rear Window two nights ago which his leg is in a cast and he's he does nothing but yeah. look out the window at people and get himself involved in a <laughs> yeah that's been a reference point in my household too especially during lockdown but i hope it doesn't end quite as dramatically as that right, right. <laughs> so i must thank Sharhida for putting up with our format here this was a confluence of a, a few things that you're doing kind of a book tour right now and are probably used to just giving more or less the same speech <laughs> or answering just being interviewed about your book. But we are already kind of had on our minds after we had done the Simone de Beauvoir episodes. She had a really interesting chapter on fashion then. And so we were looking, okay, we want to do a survey of what philosophers have written about this. And lo and behold, the email comes to me from uh, your publicist about this. And you were good enough to pick these readings for us, many of which did not actually mention clothes. So <laughs> I, I was interpreting this as a you know, these were the footnotes from the parts of your the intro to your book for the most part. And these are kind of the groundwork for us to philosophically appreciate the work that is done in this actually very new area, right? Yeah, well, I would say that's perhaps the raison d'etre of the book that I trained in literary theory and philosophy. And I was looking for this book and it didn't exist. There were not philosophers who were really writing about clothes. Although sometimes, you know, clothes might be a metaphor or at worst, there would be a really derogatory remark. I think Kant says something about fashion being for females and folly, which isn't particularly encouraging. So I was trying to find resources, trying to find, well, two things. I was trying to understand why philosophers didn't seem to be interested in clothes. And I tried to answer that in my book. And then I was trying to think about how you could use existing philosophy to start to think about clothes and why it might be interesting to think about clothes at all. So yeah, that explains why none of the thinkers I've selected actually talk about what they wear. But I think you can use them to think about what we do wear. And as I got through the readings that you had recommended, I kind of decided the Simone de Beauvoir chapter that I was thinking we'd return to that chapter from The Second Sex was kind of beside the point that she's addressing kind of what you might expect in The Second Sex is how standards of fashion oppress women. And certainly that is still a live issue. And there are all sorts of 
extensions to body image issues that, that one could, but that's not really, at least the parts of your book that we read and the, the essays that we read, that's not really the focus. It, it's yes, okay, obviously, if it's just a form of oppression, that is something philosophically worth talking about, but that's not all, right? That we've got a bunch of distinct issues in here. I'm not sure what the best way is. Well, it was more focused on the emancipatory potential of dress, right? Mm hmm. The positive. I don't think that people should not read Simone de Beauvoir. I think if there's any excuse to read Simone de Beauvoir, we should read her. And she's really great at articulating something that I think feels really obvious to us now, but perhaps wasn't when she was writing, which is that there is a difference between the ways that men and women experience their clothes, what she calls the social experience of dress. So she says that a man's clothes should indicate his transcendence and not attract attention, and that his clothes do not set him up as an object. She uses the word object, whereas a woman, on the contrary, is required by her society to indicate her good looks and her elegance and her clothes set her up as an object. And we're so used to talking about the objectification of women. And I absolutely write about that in my book. And she's really great in in the way that she is in passing insights throughout The Second Sex, where she talks about how young women in particular are torn between the wish and the refusal to display, which I think is acutely right, that women are torn between the desire to show off or to display what they wear in themselves through their clothes, and also a kind of resistance that there's a oppression in being forced to objectify yourself. But Simone de Beauvoir can also be extremely cruel about older women. She's rude about the gaudy <laughs> ways that older women dress. But the main reason anybody should read Simone de Beauvoir, I think, is because she dresses amazingly in real life. She used to wear ski clothes in bed to save on heating bills and she didn't want to wash her hair. So that's why she would wear the turban during the Nazi occupation of France. And so one of my interests is, is in how philosophers themselves dress. And so many of the philosophers I've picked today Foucault, uh, de Beauvoir, Derrida, Sontag, were brilliant dressers. And that's interesting in itself, not in a facetious way. I think it's, it's telling. Definitely. I have to say, you offer quite a few interesting theses in a very short period in the sections that we read from your book. But the one that captivated me most and is kind of the anchor for my reading today is what you say in your introduction on page five. I'm going to read just a I hope it's not embarrassing to you to hear a quote from your own book, but... Um, <laughs> I'll try not to blush. <laughs> yes. Uh, it says, We are dressed. In all parts of our culture, literature, music, film, and art, we find the representation of clothes. They can be ordinary and unremarkable or glamorous and arresting, but they are there. And you go down and you say, essentially, what I have in mind is something more expansive and open than, you know, a discussion of fashion, a kind of philosophy of dress. I want to suggest that in dress, we might find a way of apprehending the world, understanding it as it is expressed in an idiom that is found everywhere, if only we care to read it. It made me think of what distinguishes, if we go back to the classical philosophers, you know, what is it that makes human beings different from animals? Because you have a later chapter where you talk about wearing animal clothing, but we're the rational animal, we're the political animal, we're the social animal. We are the animal that uses tools, right? There's a variety of different ways that we demarcate ourselves in the hierarchy of being from presumably lesser beings. And I thought it was interesting to take the concept of yet another way we demarcate ourselves is that we are the animals that dress. We are the animals that wear clothes. That it's just as valid and just as interesting a way of demarcating human beings from other animals as any of those other 
categories. That's precisely why I turned to Derrida in the chapter on animals. The, the book is organized by garment, essentially dresses, suits. I talk about bags. But then the chapter that slightly angles to that is a chapter on animal skins, furs, feathers, and skins. Because I think that there's a way in which we can think about exceptionalism or our non-exceptionalism as human beings in the animal kingdom through our clothes. And Derrida is the person who starts to do that. He, well, he starts to think about, of course, our relationship between human beings and animals. And he thinks about nudity. And in fact, he has this extremely embarrassing and hilarious moment where he's undressing in front of his cat. And he's startled at his own embarrassment at being naked in front of his naked cat. And in that instant, he recognizes a relationship between the two of them, not just master and cat, but some sort of strange equality and also vulnerability. He's suddenly vulnerable in front of his naked cat. And he invokes Montaigne, Montaigne's famous cat conundrum. Montaigne asks, when I play with my cat, who is to say she is not playing with me? And any self-respecting cat owner knows that that's an impossible question to ask. And I was struck by how the post-humanist turn in philosophy, the interest in the relationship between animals and humans and the, the blurring of the distinction between animals and humans has covered so many topics. It's thought about ecological issues. It's thought about veganism and vegetarianism, but it hasn't, to my mind, really thought about dress. And actually, when we are dressed, one of the very obvious things that happens every day and we rarely think about is that our clothes are the things that are pressed closest to our skin for the largest part of the day. And we rarely think about the intimacy of that relationship, particularly when it's an animal skin against us. And that doesn't just mean, you know, your glamorous partner in a fur coat. It means, you know, the leather on your shoes or the suede on your jacket or I don't know, are you in a cold part of America in Wisconsin? You know, the, the goose feathers in your jacket. And I thought, well, this has to be part of the post-humanist turn as well. If we're thinking about the relationship between animals and human beings, we need to think about the clothes on our bodies as well. Yeah, I think the Derrida might be a good way into this series of readings, even though it's the one that was sort of last on our list. <laughs> I don't blame you. It's so hard, the Derrida. I was, it was sort of a <laughs> trick question on my part to set it for you to see how we would navigate it together. But I, I think it's really rewarding in other ways, even though it's so opaque. The part later in your book that we read, apart from the intro, was, I don't know if it's quite secondary literature on this, but it certainly was the lens through which I was reading this Derrida part of an essay. I guess what made this, your whole discussion in the intros, well-situated in the history of philosophy for me was just folks like Descartes and Kant that uh, regarded our soul, or back to Plato, as what is important about us and the physical things, you know, this is a very Christian notion. The physical things are all shallow. They'll all fall away. The true philosopher is not concerned with that. But then once we get to folks like Heidegger, that's a false dichotomy. We need to understand ourselves as embodied. It's been a giant mistake in the history of philosophy to feel like we are disembodied, rational souls. And so paying attention, you know, we get Merleau-Ponty talking about the, the phenomenology of the body. This whole talk of clothes just seems an extension of that, right? We are embodied, not just in our skin, but in these things we wear all the time. So shouldn't philosophy pay attention to that? I think that's right in one particular way that's very evident in my book, which is that my interests are in contemporary continental philosophy. So Derrida, um, particularly people like Sontag, uh, Foucault. But the one thing I realized, and the reason that is, because, is precisely as you say, that those people become interested in the body, they become interested in 
phenomenology. Um, Gaston Bachelet is the person I don't mention in the book, but who I think is the blueprint for the book in, in many ways, the poetics of space in the 60s is a kind of experiential, evocative account of how we inhabit space and what architecture does to our lived experience. And then in a way, I was trying to think about clothes in that way too. And so I absolutely belong to that contemporary tradition. But the one thing I would say is that during my investigations, I found so many things that surprised me. So about very many of those early philosophers that you mentioned. So Kant is extremely rude about clothes. And he says, clothes are a folly and we ought not to be interested in them. And I talk a little bit about Kantian ideas of appearance, which are not appearance in the sense that we think of in fashion. But I try to think about the way that that idea of appearance might overlap with appearance. But Kant, I found out, was extremely well-dressed. He was very interested in his own dress. And the thing about Descartes, I mean, this is the thing that was most startling and funny almost, is that there's an apocryphal story about Descartes coming up with the um, Cartesian coordinate system, you know, the X and Y axes, that he did it while he was lying in bed because he was extremely lazy and would not get up very early. And he was watching a spider weaving a web in the corner of his bedroom. And he was thinking about how you map three-dimensional space into a two-dimensional coordinate system. And that's the Cartesian coordinate system. And all of dressmaking relies on the Cartesian coordinate system. It relies on the way that you map a 3D body onto a 2D flat surface. So even Descartes, in some peculiar way, yields something about the way that we dress and the way that we think about our three-dimensional bodies. Isn't that surprising? I mean, I found that really surprising. I never heard that story before. I've I've read the geometry of Two or three times. <laughs> but obviously, I haven't read anything about the making of the geometry. Yeah, I think it's an apocryphal story, but a really good one. Yep. You want to believe it. Am I right in thinking that this Derrida essay lies most clearly on that line of talking about embodiment? That it seems like the direction that Derrida is going to take in here, he again looks at the history of philosophy and instead of saying, you know, some of these past people are too spiritual, I want to be more bodily, he asks it in the form of, there are some philosophers who you get the feeling that they've never been looked at naked by an animal <laughs> or that they've never acknowledged the meaningfulness of that encounter. And then there's other philosophers that, you know, are something that he's going to lay out. And it wasn't clear to me sort of what his whole agenda was going to be going forward and the rest of it. But clearly it was something along the, the Heideggerian lines. Heideggerian is right, I think. I mean, I think body is one of those words that you don't normally associate with Derrida. You would think of someone like Judith Butler and you might even think of someone like Foucault and biopolitics. I think he can feel so difficult and opaque, but I never find him abstract. I think he's always thinking about relations, about how one category or concept is related to another. Um, He's always disrupting the distinctions between writing and speech, for instance, right? Very early on in writing and difference and in dissemination. Or in the book about friendship, he's disrupting the distinction between friendship and enmity. And in this book, he's disrupting the distinction between human and animal. And he says this is a continuum. And when we start to think about the ways that we're connected to animals, when we start to think about the ways we are animals, I am like my cat, naked in front of it, just as it is naked in front of me, then that has to put some burden on the way that we behave with each other. Ethics. Derrida is, I think, an ethical thinker. And I'm really interested in the ethics of dress because we are human beings who wear clothes, not just for ourselves, but in relation to each other. And it's the to each other that I'm most interested in. And that has repercussions beyond, you know, just the idea that 
you're wearing your plaid shirt, Dylan, and I'm wearing a bobbled black jumper with a sequined necklace. Um, it's more than the fact that we're related through our clothes. It's about the people who make our clothes as well. Mm. I mean, that's a big part of my book, that we have to start to think seriously about the nature of our clothes and care about our clothes as objects of serious inquiry if we are to start to care about the people who make our clothes. So it's about relation. Derrida is always thinking about the ethics of relation. And in this case, how we relate to animals. I like that you're pointing out that it's a, a Derrida is focused on the relation and the questions of it. And it did make me clarify an observation that I've had unconsciously when reading Derrida, that his constant interest in relation I think adds to a little bit of, it's not exactly distractedness, but because he can't help himself from pointing out, there's sometimes the relations that he has in his writing are pointing to things that he's going to take up later or whatever. There's a little bit of a squirrel quality. Like I'm looking at something and I, oh, I can't help but talk about this thing because it's, there's a kind of, I don't know, linearity in writing inevitably, then he wants to talk about so many things. That's right. That's my experience of reading him. He feels like a series of non sequiturs, but they're all tangentially connected and they all come back to some point. Um, the only time I ever saw him in real life was in the early noughties and he was giving a lecture in London and I went along and he was very old and frail and I was quite dazzled and exhausted by how connective his thinking was and he was making precisely those connective related leaps that are exhausting to follow. Yeah. But the thing that I remember is that afterwards a colleague said to me, but Derrida looked exactly as he imagined him, which was like <laughs> a very handsome, tanned ski instructor. And I remember that really vividly. Sure. But there was a kind of exotic, I don't know, glamorous otherness to him. Sure. I was reading the Derrida, I was trying to sort of sort out that continuum that you referred to. He's clearly trying to point to a kind of continuum between animals and us and maybe bring them together. But there's also maintaining this distinction, which seems to signal a kind of borderline, which is we wear clothes and they don't. Getting into it had this, you know, the story of his being naked in front of his cat and then realizing that he was naked in front of his cat. And in particular, that he was embarrassed about being naked in front of his cat. <laughs> and that leads to a very fruitful reflection. Like, why the heck would I be embarrassed about being naked in front of my cat? But I am. And so there's a kind of self-realization. I guess what I wondered is that that whole direction to me made a lot of sense in articulating how we are very fruitful about clothing and modesty and the ethics of why we dress. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of fruitful things. But it, it doesn't, to me, give me much insight into animals. I wonder about that, it just bringing us closer to them. Because to me, in this whole thinking, there's no sense in which the cat is doing anything different than what cats do. It really is a reflection on how we understand ourselves. And it's very fruitful, but it's about us. I think that's a really good point. Isn't that always the fatal flaw in our attempts to try and write the philosophy of the animal that mm -hmm. we cannot but write it from our own position? But that's also the modesty of the gesture, isn't it? To try and unwrite ourselves out of that. But I would say that moment that you described where he is embarrassed in front of his cat and he thinks, why the hell should I be embarrassed in front of my cat? Well, you realize that you 
are normally not, you are embarrassed in front of other human beings because they possess a subjectivity that can be judgmental. And you are not embarrassed in front of your cat because you do not believe your cat possesses a subjectivity that can be judgmental. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, Derrida is thinking, what if my cat possesses a subjectivity that could be judgmental? And if I start to think of animals in that way, possessing subjectivities that could be judgmental in their own value systems, then perhaps that alters the way that I relate to them. And I think in the end, it isn't just about how we relate to the cat. It must, for Derrida, produce an ethics at the end, right? If we believe that animals have a subjectivity that is somehow close to the one that we dignify ourselves with, then the way that we treat them has to alter. So I think, you know, that's where the subsequent work on this study, the animal that therefore I am, has developed into a kind of animal ethics, which is about, you know, things like vivisection. It's things like vegetarianism. Um, What is the respect that we dignify ourselves with which we have not been able to extend to our animals and will that alter if we start to attribute to animals a subjectivity of their own it makes me think about the distinction between the kind of reaction an animal will have on the podcast we've a number of times you know talked about things like the capability of animals to have something like reason they clearly there's lots and lots of examples of animals where you just say, well, they're clearly figuring something out. They're making judgments of judgments that are the sort of, I'll call it reasonable judgments, cause and effect kinds of judgments, that kind of thing. And what you're pointing out is that when you think about this, especially in the context of Derrida, of an ethical judgment like shame, is that you begin to wonder, well, what would it mean to have that kind of subjectivity on an animal where the animal in, say, just to pick an example, the human being cruel to the animal, besides the animal being scared or wanting to run away or all, all other kinds of sort of instinctual things, could there be something like them recognizing us as bad and a distinction between that and just being afraid? I think your first point is right, that in the end, you return to a, not a paradox, but a, a dilemma that in your attempts to understand the animal, it is almost impossible for you not to understand it within the terms of your own reference. It's impossible to understand the animal in its own language or in its own values. And that the philosophical writing about the animal will always fall into that trap. And one of the things I try to write about in my book when I explore the relationship between human beings who wear animal skins is to try and think about strangeness. That when I think about leopard print dresses, a designer dress by Jean Bourgotier, which is it's in sequins, but it's trying to imitate a kind of the look of fur, if not the touch of fur. It's the look of fur, and it has a tiger's head, I think it is, or it might be a cheetah's head at the bodice, looking up at the woman who's wearing it. And it's a kind of it's a, a trompe l'oeil, a trick of the eye, that it looks like a cat, but it's made of sequins. And so what is it that we're doing when we're trying to imitate animals? And actually, we can't imitate animals. There's a limit to how far we can mimic animals. And why are we trying to pretend to be them? Animals are different to us. And actually, one of the things that happens when we wear wear animal skins is that we realize how different a fox fur feels next to our own bare flesh, right? that suede has a particular kind of grain, and it is entirely different to the grain of my arm. One of the things that we will never be able to overcome, and we have to acknowledge, is our difference, that the animal is not me, 
and I'm wearing it and trying to imitate it. I'm trying to steal its properties and its qualities because I lack them myself. I can't heat myself in the way that a fur coat will or that a woolen jacket will. So there is a kind of insurmountable difference between me and the animal, which I think we have to accept too. When you start speaking in that kind of vocabulary about inhabiting and adopting qualities and so forth, it's framing it in a certain context that ignores or misses a relationship for certain other kinds of societies, non-Western societies, or perhaps pre-industrial. I don't want to go too far in this because I'm not an expert, but we did an episode on Native American philosophy, and there's definitely a sense of animism, and there's a sense in which you can inhabit the spirit or take on the spirit of the animal. So there's a sense in which, aside from the feeling of the texture next to your skin or the difference, there's you know a sense in which an identification with what the animals represent or the powers that they have, and that by physically inhabiting the skins, you also take on that spiritual aspect. I don't think that's something you're particularly interested in, but I think it's also something to acknowledge that there's an originary. Yeah, that's fascinating. I don't write about it and I don't know enough about it, but it is totally fascinating. The one thing I do write about is about feathers and women, because one of the things, the historical things I discovered in my research is that exactly as the women's suffrage movement is developing in Britain at the turn of the 19th century, the uh, later part of the 19th century, there is this enormous trade in birds because one of the things we forget is that women wore enormous numbers of feathers, feathers in hats largely. And so there were, it was this incredible trade and there are trade ledgers from South America and Africa talking about ex- the trade in exotic birds. And women realize this is happening and they start a campaign for the preservation of birds. In fact, they formally found what's called, in Britain, it's called the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB. I don't know if there's an equivalent in America, but it's basically an animal welfare organization with great history and it's a lot of fondness for it. But nobody realizes that it was founded by women because women were identifying with these endangered birds. And there is a kind of writing, Mary Wollstonecraft writes about this, about why women are like birds. Um, she thinks that there is a kind of relationship between the entrapment of birds and their, their capacity for flight, their difference that women somehow channel. And so I try to write about, it's not quite animism in the way that you're describing, Seth, which sounds completely wonderful and amazing to me. But there is a kind of sympathy and a relationship that manifests in a, in a political form at the turn of the 19th century or the later part of the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciated that mention. I actually read through to that chapter on feathers because as soon as I saw it, I was put in mind, I'm, I like opera and there are uncountable arias associating. <laughs> and of course, even the way in which the parts for, for sopranos and, and so forth are written, that imitate birdsong and to associate women with birds. Have you got something in mind? I'd love to know. Well, there's l'amour et un oiseau rebelle, right? Love is a rebellious bird which is not specifically associating with women, but of course it's sung by Carmen. And then not so much bird, but also with the same kind of concept is la donne mobile. So women are like butterflies. And it's the flip side of the caged bird. It's the notion that birds represent a certain kind of, if you watch birds, which I do, we have many birds, I'm a, I'm a birder. But if you watch birds, you can perceive their actions as being 
they seem skittish. You know, their attention is focused here and there, and they flit from place to place. And there's not the same sense of, you know, they're not a rooting animal like a rodent or something like that that you. And so this association with women and feathers and birds representing a certain kind of flightiness that doesn't carry the weight. It can't be responsible, can't be rational, can't carry on those kinds of things. I think there's a long tradition of of that in literature and especially in opera. It's fascinating. Seth, what you brought up about the Native American episode that we did, I, it made me think of, so this quote on page 208 in Shahida's book, this idea that animal skins are worn as the mark of our privilege and poise vividly contrasts with the more atavistic habits of the primitive man as we imagine first wearing fur. But is the fur-clad countess in a novel by Tolstoy really so far removed from the image of the caveman crudely draped in hide? Doesn't the same impulse linger beneath the surface of both? The simple fact is that the human beings dress in skins of other animals. We command the life of other creatures in order to make sense of our own. It seems like Derrida's complaint here, and maybe your complaint here, is that we are alienated, right? That there really is in pre-industrial peoples who are you know, maybe having to kill the animal themselves or someone you, you've seen the animal, you have some relationship to when it actually had its skin on it, and then you put on that skin that there really does seem something fundamentally different between that and this, you know, the kind of people that you criticize who don't acknowledge the people who make their clothes, their origins, whereas there's something authentic about using, not necessarily that we want to go back to this attitude, but there's something more authentic about that original way of wearing hides than just purchasing it, something like that. That's so interesting that you picked up on that section. I think that we are alienated insofar as it's not so much that there is something authentic about the caveman in the crudely draped in the hide, but rather there is an illusion in the countess wearing the fur, right? That's what I'm interested in, that the illusion of a civility or a civilization that is blood-free, that is without savagery, because that's what we attribute to the caveman. But there is savagery in the countess wearing the fur too. That's why a few paragraphs later, I cite Walter Benjamin. Um, When Walter Benjamin is writing about, he's looking at a pair of leather gloves And he thinks that these gloves provoke a horror, he says, a horror that stirs deep in man, an obscure awareness that in him something lives so akin to the animal that it might be recognized. And he's writing at this terrible moment in European history during the Second World War, where we're really seeing the savagery of human beings. And he's feeling it very particularly as a German Jew who's being forced to flee his home. And in that moment, when he's looking at the leather gloves, he's thinking about how when we wear animal skins like leather against our own skin, we have mastered the animal. But our mastery involves a savagery that we do not always want to acknowledge. And that's what we're alienated from, that original savagery that is involved in the way that we fashion our clothes. And in a different way, we're also alienated, I think, from the savage conditions in which our clothes are made now, right? That there is a kind of alienation that happens in the ways that we buy things that come to us without, they come to us clean, without a trace of the hands through which they've passed, right? So when you buy whatever you buy in a shop, you buy a shirt, if it has the slightest crease or smear on it, you will return it to the shop because what you want to buy is something pure and untouched by human hands, except that what you are buying has been made, it's been probably been made, the great likelihood is that it's been made in a, by a garment worker who's working in conditions 
that are deeply unhappy and poorly paid. And so we are absolutely alienated from the things that we weigh. We're in the way that, in the sense that we are not conscious of those things too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're alienated from a certain kind of savagery, I think. I'm seeing clear parallels in this between the Kristeva style. We are horrified by these things that are ultimately getting at our origins, right? We don't like to think that we came from a mother. So we discussed this also uh, in our more recent Butler episode uh, versus this similar take, but that we don't want to acknowledge our own animality. That's why we're like this Benjamin example. That's why we're somehow revolted by the, uh, you know, just the sheer physicality and animality of the gloves, or maybe that's the same explanation for, you know, seeing ourselves face to face with the naked cat when we're naked, that there's something, you know, that reminds us of our animal nature and that that shocks us. But there's no clear connection between that and say, you know, the developmental stuff that the psychotherapist wants to pick up on. Are those just totally different kinds of explanations for U.S.? I'm a little unclear on what you're asking. What you thought of this whole idea of psychological explanation of there's a fundamental alienation between us and our animal nature, and that's why things like leather gloves freak us out. Things like leather gloves freak us out? Well, they don't freak us out, but they freak out Benjamin in a very particular moment (laughs) of history. And I think that's the thing about the point you made about alienation, Mark, is that we're not freaked out by our fur coats and our leather jackets, but we ought to be freaked out because our civilization is an illusion and being dressed for this world, for our society, is part of that illusion. I mean, part of what I think we're struggling with is this question of both alienation and distance that we have and a version of facing up to the truth of the history of the things in this case that we wear. And I feel a real parallel with with other kinds of pristineness that we uh, in, engage in. You know, ugly veg is one, right? So you go to the supermarket and every bell pepper and every carrot is perfectly shaped. But if anybody who's grown anything or farmed anything knows that that's just not true. And in fact, there's a tremendous amount of food that's perfectly edible in the sense that it tastes just the same. But it's just inconvenient, right? It's carrots with three legs and it's, you know, the green pepper with a a divot on the side. And that morphological difference actually doesn't have anything to do with the taste. It It doesn't reveal anything about it. It might be that it makes it more inconvenient to chop. My son, the other day, he was over and we were cooking and we had this funny moment where he cooks for himself and he is chopping and he described routinely wishing just being irritated about onions being round and not being square. It's like, why aren't there square onions? <laughs> because it's just so inconvenient to have a round onion. And uh, I almost, I laughed for, I don't know, a good solid minute. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever, <laughs> and, uh, but this is with animals. And it's like saying, getting sort of freaked out, Benjamin getting freaked out about the leather gloves and stuff like that. Part of it, I end up thinking about, well, there is something important about the distance that we have with the things that we make and consume and interact with in our lives. And there is something to be said for maintaining that closeness and acknowledging it. So when we talk about, for me, like the distinction between something like fur and something typically like leather is that, you know, I have the disposition of, well, look, I eat animals and I eat cows less than I used to, but I eat animals. I don't have a lot of problem with it. But I also think that as part of sort of the ethical decision regarding that is using as much of the animal as possible makes a lot of sense. And so that's different to me than slaughtering a uh, a fox for the fox's 
fur as opposed to taking these say well if i'm going to consume this this animal then i should make sure that i consume it well i absolutely agree in the sense that i feel like there is a kind of dignity in acknowledging that the goose is able to heat you and keep you warm in a way that you're not capable of on your own terms i'm interested in that that there are things that animals can do and we admire and aspire to it, and we incorporate them into our clothes as a result. And there is a kind of dignity to that. It's not that we should, I don't know, I feel sort of agnostic about fur, and I feel certainly about leather. And the thing that I'm interested in is the illusion of our distance, that we are not like our animals, because I think we are. I guess I'm thinking that that illusion of distance is exemplified with our clothes, but as a kind of exemplification of a general kind of distance that we have either with ourselves and our location in the world, our placement in the world, our embodiment as physical beings. And that's why, you know, again, I think about things like, you know, again, ugly veg, right? Or other kinds of things that are not perfect, right? To me, it takes me down that road of our preoccupation with something like perfection, which ends up being idealized right out of the world. And that this thread of thinking is one pulling us back into the world, back into our embodiment, back into our blood and our dirt and our context. Can I interpret your comment, Dylan, as a transition to (laughs) get Foucault on the table here? Because it sounds like the way, so again, the name of his essay was The Ethics of the Concern of the Self as a Practice of Freedom. This is a interview with three different people, and it's kind of rambling over a few different subjects, but definitely the relevance for us was, I think, just the main point of, right, he has a whole book, History of Sexuality, Volume 3, The Care of the Self, and what that means in terms of, we can see how that's reflected in, you know, why we might care about that for defending fashion as a legitimate thing to talk about philosophically, because it sounds like, you know, someone could, along the lines of what you were just saying, Dylan, say, you know, all this concern about physical appearance, physical perfection, that's just alienating, that's false, that's actually the kind of thing that uh, Simone de Beauvoir is complaining about. It's a way of being inauthentic. But Foucault, you can interpret maybe as responding to that by saying, no, no, in fact, look at ancient philosophy from Plato through the Stoics and the Epicureans, very much their approach, right, the whole ancient virtue ethics approach is self-care, is make yourself into a person that you can be proud of that has all the virtues and that includes your presentation to other people. There's something inherently outward facing in that self-construction, in that pursuit of virtue that you end up, Foucault says, according to these philosophies, you know, and Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, of course, is, goes into great detail about this, that if you, even if you're trying to just walk around the world with the appropriate poise, the appropriate attitude, the appropriate deliberate approach, the appropriate lack of fear of death, whatever the thing that you're trying to argue is, is part of that ethic, then you end up sort of by definition in proper comportment regarding other people so that there really is nothing problematic then per se about caring about your virtue and your appearance being part of that. Shayda, am I, am I characterizing the, the connection to your book correctly here? Yeah, beautifully, Mark. Thank you. I, and it, it's the ethics that makes it important. It's the eth- caring for yourself so that you can engage with others to the fullest and most careful ways, to the, the best of your capacity. Caring for yourself so that you can enable that relationship to others, that redeems self-care for me. I, I always have question marks over the term self-care. And some people have 
I think some readers of Foucault, this version of Foucault, towards the end of his career, where he writes about the technology of the self and the care of the self, sometimes people have taken it as a kind of aesthetics of the self, where you curate the self, oh, that you go to the gym and you develop a gym body. And, you know, it's a kind of defense of a certain kind of narcissism. And I don't think that's right, actually. I think what he's doing is thinking exactly as you delineate, Mark, that you shape the self so that you can be a productive member. Productive isn't the right word, but like a considerate and capacious member of a society that engages with others. Ethos for him is about being with others. And the interesting thing about this essay for me is that it comes so late in his life. It's, it's an interview, as you say. And I think he's always wonderfully urbane and witty in interviews, more so than in his, his writing generally. And this interview happens in, I think, the January of 1984, and he, he dies in the June of 1984. So it's very close to the end for him where he, I'm imagining that his body is ravaged by AIDS and he's thinking about his own mortality. It must be impossible for him not to be thinking about that. He's writing and thinking about the body at precisely this moment where his own body is failing him. He's thinking about caring for the self, how you take care of yourself, your body, your subjectivity, your being, precisely at the moment that he's vulnerable. And it's such a surprising essay for many people because this interview is, is surprising because the first question the interviewer asks him, whether he's suddenly become interested in subjectivity, because to all intents and purposes, Foucault has not been interested in subjectivity. Foucault has been interested in prisons. Foucault has been interested in asylums. He's been interested in the discourses of the medical and legal profession. But at this stage of his career, he's talking about subjectivity. And at this moment in this interview, he says, I have always been interested in subjectivity that there is no point thinking about structures and systems of power without subjectivity. The subject is shaped by structures of power. It's shaped by the prison system. It's shaped by discipline. It's shaped by a history of hospitals. It's shaped by all the things that Foucault has investigated. But he has always been interested in the subject. And if I, it comes to me like a revelation when I read this interview that Foucault has always been interested in subjectivity. And I find it just immensely moving that he is returning to the body at this moment in his own life, in his own death. You remind me of this section where he frames this in terms of the practices of freedom over the processes of liberation. Let's say what care of the self means. Let's just back up a little bit. There's a specific meaning to this, which has to do with self-mastery, right? And individual freedom. This is the sort of thing that he's taking from ancient ethics. The idea of surpassing oneself, mastering one's appetites, being a good ruler over oneself. So there's a transition from that to an ethos as a way of being or a certain type of behavior. So this is an extension of virtue ethics, right? It's, it's kind of reminiscent of Nietzsche from particular habits, which we might typically associate with virtue, like magnanimity or temperance, to one's style of being. It has something in common with the traditional concept of virtue in that it's behavioral and in some sense formal, but it gets us closer to the connection between the aesthetic and the ethical. So clothing, for instance, and this is the really the one place in the essay that this connection is made. The bulk of the essay is about self-care as a practice of freedom. And then we get this one little reference to ethos and to clothing and appearance and to gait because they are meant to be signifiers of something. They're meant to be manifestations of character. So for instance, the example he brings up is calmness 
in response to events, although that's explicitly a part of one's ethos. But it's part of a list in which clothing is included. But I think the ethical dimension to dress in Foucault has to have something to do with, you know, he calls it a concrete form of freedom. It has to do with the expression of freedom or the expression of certain kind of virtue, broadly speaking, a certain kind of style of being, which might, you know, he gives a long list of adjectives, which you might call beautiful, honorable, estimable, memorable, exemplary, that sort of thing. So that for me is the really interesting connection between here the one's appearance, which we might typically think of as superficial or unrelated to deeper substance of character and to the ethical, when in fact there's kind of connection. There's an earlier essay called Technologies of the Self, I think, where he uses the phrase, um, he doesn't quite use self-care, he's care of the self means, um, this is the quote, taking pains with one's health and holdings alike, which I think would speak to that classical notion of, of virtue ethics. And you're right that there's something almost nostalgic about this essay, that he is revisiting or tracing what he regards as a shift from a Greek model of the care of the self to a modern notion of philosophy, which is which entails knowing yourself. And he thinks knowing yourself is a kind of falsehood that ourselves are shaped by power and that the pursuit of knowing oneself is somehow a kind of misjudged effort, whereas caring for the self is the thing that could produce ethos, the ethical relationship to others. But the other thing I would say is that when you think about it, of course, he's been concerned with how we think about our health and our holdings alike in all of his work. When you think about the ways he writes about the penal system, the ways that a disciplinary society works upon the human body in schools, in armies, in prisons, he's always been thinking about the way that the body is marshaled. And in this later part of his career, he calls it biopolitics, the way that a state administers the body. And biopolitics is something that we should be wary of. It's the way in which a population is governed and controlled through health and safety and obedience. We're in lockdown right now. We're in a moment of biopolitics where our governments are telling us to stay indoors, that our bodies are being controlled. And Foucault cautions us to be anxious and cautious of it. But he also thinks, I think, in this essay and certainly in the history of sexuality, that there is a kind of agency that we can... Um, there is some sort of possibility that might be enabled by our care of the self and that that is the job of philosophy proper, to return to the care of the self rather than the foolishness of knowing yourself. And I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah, this is a type of freedom that, you know, he wants, as Dylan was pointing out, to make a distinction between power and domination, right? And freedom and liberation. So domination might include some of these unjust social systems, for instance, or systemic inequalities that limit our possibilities. And in some cases, you know, if domination is total, then freedom in the sense that he's been talking about is a non-starter. But liberation doesn't guarantee freedom. So for instance, sexual liberation doesn't guarantee sexual vitality or good sexual relationships. The other interesting thing for me that he emphasizes in this essay is the the fact that he's often misinterpreted to say that because power suffuses the social and human relationships, that we ought to abandon the concept of freedom when that's clearly not the case. And in fact, he says it's only because freedom 
suffuses the human relationships, that power can suffuse human relationships. Once domination is total, the concept of power actually disappears. Yes, and he's really clear-eyed about the fantasies of progress, right, that he does throughout his work, right? The idea that a modern penal system is somehow more humane than previous ones, or that suddenly we are more sexually liberated than the Victorians were. He's always interrogating the idea that we are progressive, that we are progressing, and freedom for him is always a question. Are we as free as we think? In the history of sexuality, he is asking, are we as sexually liberated as we think? Whether the Victorians as repressed as we thought? Or was this a manifestation of power? And, and my question in my book is, are we as free as we think we are in our dress? Um, you know, in dress historians talk about corsets and crinolines and Chinese foot binding. And we think there's a history of being oppressed in our dress. And somehow we are now magically liberated or free in the fact that we are able to avail ourselves of so many choices. But are we as free as we think in the ways that we dress? That's a question that recurs for me throughout my book, partly because Foucault is the person that asks you to question that narrative of a kind of progressive model of, of freedom. I think clothing is one of the cases in which our freedom is obviously typically limited, right? Why does the choice for me in a given day come down to jeans versus khakis, let's say? Um, not to say that that's what I'm limited to. You know, I also have sweatpants. But... Um, <laughs> I'm learning so much about you, Wes. <laughs> or a button-down shirt. And actually, style for me, you know, it's something that I paid more attention to as I got older. So I was much more casual about dress when I was younger, but I paid a lot more attention to it as I got older and as I was actually encouraged to by my psychoanalyst. I find that psychoanalysts, because they have to show up and you can't look bad. So psychoanalysts pay attention to their dress and it's just sort of, it's part of the community. And uh, so you start to pick up on that. But what I was meaning to say was that even then, even if you start paying attention, you're paying attention to, you know, for instance, you might buy a style guide. You're looking for certain norms. So the fashions are the fashions. The fashions are something bigger than you. And what counts as an expression of freedom? Is it that now that I've moved to button down shirts and that feels liberating and I actually like personally it does feel liberating sometimes or is it that I'm going to wear something funky I'm going to dye my hair I'm going to do this or that but just getting back to the distinction I, I wanted us to keep in mind was that the freedom versus liberation so I think they're two different questions whether wearing certain types of dress might lend themselves to liberation at a political level and whether they lend themselves to freedom and care of the self at this more personal virtue ethics sounding level that Foucault was getting at in this essay. I think those are two different things and they don't necessarily go together. Agree, but I have a million questions about what you wear to analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, it's, I don't have to wear anything because I'm uh, on Zoom. So. Because, because his psychoanalyst is a cat. It's me and my cat, both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That sounds a good place to wrap up part one. Come back next week for part two or go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Become a partially examined life citizen and get it all right now. Thanks.
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.